0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. For today's program, as really has been the case with, I would say, every program we've ever done for Radio Parallax, and even before that, we sometimes wonder... What we're doing. We never really meant this to be a program about current events and the news, but um, there's so many things going on in the world that seem worthy of comment that oftentimes that is what this show is. And of course, the more in the moment a program is talking about what's going on in the world at the present time, the more freshness dated it is and the more quickly it expires. Um, I wonder if you went back and listened to radio programs being broadcast, say, in 1960, how much of it would seem relevant today? Sadly, I think actually quite a bit of it would still be relevant today, and I hope that the issues that we bat about are timeless enough to where they'll still make sense to somebody listening 15-20 years from now. I think on today's show we're going to do a review of what's been in the news, because, well, we haven't done one of these in something like a month, so I guess we're overdue. I hope you enjoyed last week's program, dear listener, where we just kind of went over what yours truly, and, uh, my dear nephew, experienced in traipsing about between the Azores, Portugal, and southern Spain. We suspect that that's the kind of program you could listen to 10 or 15 years from now, and it would still seem relatively fresh. I suppose if I think about it, I hope that in the very near future, um, a program that talks about, say, Donald Trump will seem very antiquated and uh, archaic, even. But Right now, of course, he's hot. He's the president. They tell me he's the president anyway. I don't know. So I guess what better way to back into today's program than to talk about that little video clip that surfaced a few days back of Donald Trump's cabinet meeting. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never seen a video clip taken from an actual cabinet meeting. I mean, I think over the years I've heard some audio recordings that took place during meetings of the U.S. cabinet, but... but an actual video clip where they panned around and got to see what Sonny Purdue looked like as he explained what a great, great guy Donald Trump was and what a great, great team he assembled. And everyone seemed to agree that the president had done fantastic work up till now. Very, very good work. I don't know if you saw this this video, but just from the sheer comedic perspective, it is definitely worth a look. I think if you compare it to say Woody Allen's Bananas or Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove you would find some parallels. Now, Mr. McMillan highly recommends a video put together by Senator Chuck Schumer that pokes fun at this uh, video clip. I've not yet seen this, but by the time we're uh, meeting again, I will. And since Mr. McMillan's recommendations generally are quite solid, I would say we, we all need to check this one out, folks. I think it's good every so often to pause and remind ourselves that what we do in this program is not the last word in analysis of anything. That said, when I take a look at what does float around in the mainstream media, passing for uh, insightful analysis, I'd say, well, you're, you're not going to do too bad with us. And we'll see if the program evolves, if we can't think of an example or two of wh- why that is. But we like to start each program with a quote and a quip, and so let's do that. I think well, for our quote, we'll go with uh, naturalist David Attenborough, who said recently, you know, it's a terrible thing to appear on television because people think you actually know what you're talking about. Personally, we think that Mr. Attenborough generally does know exactly what he's talking about, but his modesty is becoming. For our quip, let's go with America's 35th president, John F. Kennedy, who once famously said, my father always told me that all businessmen were sons of bitches. Now, Here at Radio Parallax, we don't necessarily completely concur with the opinions of Joseph P. Kennedy, but we have seen enough to be able to say that we would agree that many businessmen are sons of bitches. And to all those business people out there that are trying to earn an honest living, no, we don't mean you. We like to do good news items on every week's program, and we have a backlog on those, and good God... there ever was a time we need a lot of good news items, I'd say it would be right now. But it is the world of science that often provides us with some of our best good news items, and today's no exception. In spite of what Donald Trump may think, global warming actually is a very serious issue, perhaps mankind's greatest issue. We've taken the position on this program in the past that the best way to deal with this would be a carbon tax, which doesn't seem to be uh, in danger of being implemented anywhere by anybody, but it probably would solve the problem, but in the meantime, we're looking for minor solutions here and there, and one may be offered up by beavers. Yes, the large aquatic rodents, apparently, when they build their dams, causes a reduction in river temperatures. This is according to New Scientist magazine, May 27th issue. Apparently, researchers at the Ecological Research Inc. in the United States monitored the stream temperatures at 23 sites along the Bridge Creek in Oregon over an eight-year period, and they found out that the beaver dams there increased over that period from 24 to 120. At the same time, the temperatures in the water dropped. By the end of the eight-year period, the downstream temperatures in the stream had dropped 2.6 degrees Celsius on average, although they admit it's not clear how the dams led to this. It may be a stretch to say this, but the article concluded that these results suggest that beaver relocation projects could be used to mitigate the impact of human-induced thermal degradation, and that may threaten sensitive cold-water fish species. So at least some cold-water fish May come out of this a little bit better, thanks to our friend, the beaver. For his part, Mr. Millen expresses quite an interest in this beaver relocation project. Or, or perhaps some other project, I'm a little unclear. Now, over the years, we've poked fun at a lot of articles with May in, uh, in the headline, because, you know, May could mean anything at least in terms of how likely something is. I mean, I can in good faith say that leprechauns may appear in this room shortly. (laughs) In spite of the imprecision of the word may, we like this headline so much we're going to go with it. From New Scientist also, the headline is Low Cannabis Dose May Boost Old Brains. (laughs) Said the article, In some cultures, it's traditional for elders to smoke grass, a practice said to help them pass on knowledge. And yes, we're a little unclear on which cultures they're referring to, but let's just go with it. Magazine said they just may be onto something. Low doses of the active ingredient in cannabis, THC, seems to reverse brain aging in elderly mice anyway. They note that these findings aren't that surprising. Uh, Animal studies in the past have shown that cannabinoids, which the body produces itself, can be beneficial to the brain. We should clarify that according to this study, that mice who received some THC, or at least mice that were middle-aged and elderly, well, they performed as well as young mice on, you know, cognitive tests such as maze running. Unfortunately, they noted that when they tested young mice on THC, they performed worse in some tests than controls. The researchers speculate that's because the endocannabinoid system in young mice is more active and the extra THC may overstimulate it. We've said in this program in the past that one of the few things on Earth that's probably everything it's cracked up to be, and maybe more, is exercise. Time.com pointed out recently that if working out makes you feel younger, a new study suggests that's no illusion. In fact, vigorous exercise can actually slow the aging process down on a cellular level, turning back the clock nearly a decade. This research comes from an analysis of 6,000 adults based on their physical activity and biological markers of aging. They used DNA samples to measure the length of a participant's telomeres. These are the protein caps that protect chromosomes, like the plastic tips on shoelaces. Telomeres shrink with age, and we lose bits of them every time a cell divides. In general, people with shorter telomeres die sooner and are more likely to develop many of our chronic diseases. When researchers looked at people who exercise strenuously, say running for 30 to 40 minutes, Five days a week, they had longer telomeres. The researchers speculate that this bonus in the telomeres might come about from the exercise reducing stress and inflammation. And while it's rather speculative, it, it may turn out that if you eat a lot of fiber, you may be helping prevent arthritis of the knees. Some new research suggests that eating more nuts, legumes, fruit, whole grains, and other fiber rich foods could reduce inflammation and the risk of osteoarthritis of the knee in general. It's not a huge effect, but they did a couple of studies. One noted that people who ate an average of 21 grams of fiber each day had a 30% lower risk for knee osteoarthritis than those who had less than 9 grams. Another another study compared people who consumed 26 grams of fiber versus those who had less than 14 grams a day, and in that case, they saw a 61% lower risk of arthritis of the knee. Well, eat your fiber. I think that's the lesson there. All right, another item from a new scientist worthy of note. Infertility, of course, is a very serious problem for a lot of couples. It's noted that a 100-year-old medical technique used in fertility scans has turned out to help women get pregnant. When a woman has trouble conceiving, a common cause is blockage in the fallopian tubes that prevent the egg from traveling from the ovaries to the uterus. To search for obstructions, doctors sometimes put a liquid-containing dye into the uterus. The dye can then be seen on x-ray scans as it flows from the uterus into the fallopian tubes to reveal whether or not they are blocked. They decided to test out, in this case, whether the dye was dissolved in oil or water before having the x-ray, and it turned out that the women who received the oil, um, well, of the women who received the oil, 40% got pregnant over the next six months compared to 29% who of those who got the water. So perhaps there's something in poppy seed oil that has a specific benefit. Or maybe it could be that the oil is better than the water at dissolving any debris or mucus that's stuck in the tubes. At any rate, good news for people with infertility. And finally, another headline with May in the title, which is nevertheless, I think, worth kicking around. This is from New Scientist, 3rd of June of this year. The headline is, ocean bugs may be eating plastic. We've talked about this on the show before. Certainly when you create a new environment, a new opportunity out there in the world evolution is going to pretty much guarantee that organisms that can take advantage of this new resource will do so. In this case, the new resource is plastic garbage floating in our oceans. The article notes that plastic production is rising exponentially. But it turns out that surveys of areas where floating plastic accumulates, such as the North Atlantic Gyre, are finding much less than expected. In fact, there's only a tenth to a hundredth as much plastic as has been anticipated, and the amount doesn't appear to be increasing. This stuff's all pretty speculative, but some research has shown that the microbes colonizing floating plastic are quite distinct from those that are in the water around the plastic, and well, maybe the plastic is creating a whole new ecosystem. Now, this may have a downside as well. If plastic is being degraded faster than we've been thinking, uh, well, Plastic does contain some potentially harmful additives that could be released and enter the food chain. So, good news and bad news on this one. Although I suspect that, you know, those compounds that are created by the breakdown of plastic will in turn be digested further by other organisms. So, you know, maybe this will turn out okay. This will certainly be good news for Henderson Island. Henderson Island lies between New Zealand and Chile in the South Pacific. It boasts white sandy beaches, 57 species of flowering plants, and, unfortunately, 38 million pieces of plastic garbage, the highest density of trash ever recorded. Researchers made this startling discovery during a routine survey of the 14-square-mile coral atoll, which is so remote and inaccessible that in 1988, UNESCO declared it a World Heritage Site with a near-pristine island ecosystem. Now Henderson is littered with 18 tons of fishing nets, toothbrushes, razors, lighters, water bottles, helmets, toy soldiers, and other refuse. Apparently the island sits on the western edge of the South Pacific gyre, and uh, I guess as a consequence, this plastic debris from China, Japan, South America, Europe, the U.S., Russia, and elsewhere has floated there. During a three-month stay on Henderson, researchers found that about 3,500 pieces of plastic waste washed onto the island's beaches daily. Let's hope that bacterial ecosystem gets into high gear. And I'm sorry to say we're going to have to do a few more items on the environment that are not in the good news department. The warming in the Arctic is apparently going a lot faster than anybody expected. In fact, it's warming more than twice as fast as the rest of the planet speeding the melting of the polar ice cap and causing global sea levels to rise higher and more rapidly than previously predicted. This is the worrying conclusion of a landmark new study by over 90 leading climate scientists who warn that the rapid thaw will have major consequences for ecosystems and society. They're now talking about a 29-inch rise in global sea level by the year 2100. Discover Magazine has an issue out. The June 2017 issue on the headline is about our melting planet, what you need to know about it. And, uh, well, there's some disturbing news from the southern hemisphere. Perhaps you read about the fact that the Larsen Ice Shelf, at least part C of it, I think, uh, they divided it up into A, B, and C, I guess, guess—it's about to calve off a rather substantial iceberg. The estimates are that when this thing does bust off, and it actually, in this case, since it's already floating in the ocean when it melts, it's not going to cause sea level rise. The problem is if these ice shelves that are sticking out over the ocean all bust away, then the glaciers that are on land will start plunging into the ocean, and that will cause a rise in sea level. But uh, this apparently this this new potential iceberg will be rather large in size, about 5,000 square kilometers. Keep that figure in mind, 5,000 square kilometers. So to try and get an idea of how large of an island that is, I pulled up on the web uh, the size of the islands in the Caribbean. It turns out that this new iceberg will be the size of the island of Trinidad by way of comparison to 5,000 square kilometers. We might mention the island of St. Kitts, where Mr. Millen and I were a few years back visiting. St Kitts is 168 square kilometers in size. Meaning that this new iceberg will be the size of 30 islands the size of St Kitts. And yeah, that's a lot of ice. Anyway, that that just can't be good news and some other news that in our opinion cannot be construed as good regarding fresh water. We have the headline from the Sacramento Bee earlier this week, earlier this week noting that the Delta Tunnel decision is due in September piece by Ryan Sablau and Dale Kassler notes that the state's most powerful water agencies have set a September goal to decide whether they're going to pay for the biggest and most controversial water project California has undertaken since the 1960s. What's new in the article with this correspondent is the fact that um, people in the Silicon Valley are apparently locked into one of the major water contractors that would benefit from this project. That would be the San Luis and Delta Mendota Water Authority which serves not just farmers throughout much of the San Joaquin Valley, but also urban customers in Silicon Valley. Many environmentalists have deemed this a water grab, and Radio Parallax would wholeheartedly agree that that's what it is. As previously noted on this program, uh, Jerry Brown's administration claims that these tunnels are going to improve the Delta ecosystem. We've asked dozens of times before, but we'll ask again one more time how it is. Governor Brown, you're going to improve the ecosystem down the Delta by removing its water. If you can explain how you're going to do that, well, we might might get on board. But then while you're at it, you're going to have to come over and take our fish tank and remove the water from it and show us how that's going to benefit the fish. Let's do a stat of the day. We like to do that every program, and the one we're going to do today is 54%. That is, according to the Gallup people the percentage of Americans who think that President Trump has made no progress on his goal of changing the way Washington works. And finally, an environmental story that's quite disturbing. I think we made mention of this last week, but we need to do so again, I think. Due to unusually high Arctic temperatures that cause the permafrost to melt on the island of Spitsbergen, which belongs to Norway, but is up above Iceland, to the, to the right of Greenland, The Doomsday Seed Vault had water seep into it. That is, of course, the fail-safe trove intended to protect food supplies in case of a global calamity. The Svalbard Global Seed Vault, which is buried in in a frozen mountain out on that Norwegian island, stores 500 million seeds from around the world. But late last year, when temperatures on Svalbard pushed the permafrost around the vault, above the melting point, water seeped into the entrance tunnel. Luckily, it didn't reach the seeds, but this just can't be good news. In our anecdote for today's program, which I guess on on the one hand is not good news at all, but on the other hand, well, here's the item. South African big game hunter Theunis Berta, age 51, was leading tourists on a hunting trip in Hoangay National Park in Zimbabwe when they startled a herd of elephants. One elephant grabbed the well-known big game hunter and heaved him into the air. Another hunter then shot her, causing her to drop Berta, but then collapse on top of him. Berta was killed. He had gained a reputation by using dogs to drive big game, including lions and leopards, towards his clients as they laid in wait with high-powered rifles. Real sportsman, wouldn't you say? In a related, actually not really related story, but parallel story, Berta's friend and fellow hunter Scott Van Zyl was, last month, eaten by crocodiles in Zimbabwe. Frankly, I can't resist making the editorial comment to both stories of GOOD! Although I'm sorry to hear that the elephant that took out Mr. Berta had to die to do it. But one thing's for sure, he won't be killing any of her relatives. All right, and another story that's, uh, <laughs> not related in the slightest, but and not a very uplifting story, I suppose, but worth worth discussion, is this piece from The Week magazine, a reprint from an article from the Jakarta Globe. The author of the piece is apparently Denta Amalia. The title is, How Smoking Keeps Us in Poverty. Said the author, if Indonesia is ever going to shed its developing country moniker, it will have to quit our national cigarette habit. Nearly two-thirds of Indonesian men are regular smokers, and most of them puff on Kraytek, the local clove cigarettes which deliver more nicotine, carbon monoxide, and tar than regular cigarettes. While far fewer women smoke, the taboo is lifting, thanks to popular female role models like chain-smoking fisheries minister Susi Pujastuti. The result of this addiction is disastrous. The World Health Organization says nearly one out of four Indonesian deaths every year result from tobacco-related illnesses. This human cost has an economic toll. Smokers push their families into poverty as a -a pack-a-day habit costs nearly 30% of the national median income. The multinational tobacco companies claim, rather predictably, that the industry is a key employer in Indonesia. You know, after the piece notes that, even worse, the multinationals make money off the backs and health of many child workers who are exposed to hazardous nicotine, pesticide, and other toxic chemicals. She, I think it's a she, concludes by saying that Indonesia will never advance if the younger generation keeps puffing. As a physician, I can't help but editorialize that while I was bitterly complaining about the smoking habits of uh, the Spanish... (laughs) Uh, last month, and and last year the Serbs, which were even worse than the Spanish, I have to say that the most obnoxious smokers in the world are surely the Indonesians. While ordinary cigarettes are pretty obnoxious, Cratec cigarettes are downright nauseating. Perhaps some efforts to promote public health in Indonesia can reverse this um, unfortunate trend. We again would like to point out to people who have criticized efforts to cut down on smoking in the U.S., uh, saying that, you know, these efforts are just, you know, they're worthless. People don't listen to these ads. Well, they do. Countries that have tried to make an effort to cut down on smoking have, uh, by varying degrees, succeeded in doing so. The rates of smoking in the United States, which you know, once had a rate of, what was it, something like 50% in the 1950s, is down to something like 16 I'm pulling those out of thin air. I think those are approximations. But nevertheless, there's been a tremendous reduction here in America in the number of people who smoke. And whereas in places that don't make the effort, like Spain, well, people continue to puff away. So I think we should all support anti-smoking efforts. They do pay dividends in the long run. All right, Someone needs to explain this to me. Apparently, a woman named Reality Winner, age 25, who worked for an NSA contractor, leaked information to the press revealing that Russian hackers carried out a cyber attack on a Florida-based voting software firm ahead of the 2016 election. Uh, The penalty for leaking that information to the press was that she's now in jail. Meanwhile, President Donald J. Trump evidently recently leaked some classified information to the Russians, uh, for which to date there has been no penalty. Mr. Trump is definitely not incarcerated Although I think he's probably finding the Oval Office to be a bit more of a prison than he counted on. Anyway, enough said about that. Let's 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 just do one run through of the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? All right. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week a few weeks back for recycling after a Danish brewery launched a new line of beer named Pisner, made with barley fermented in human urine. Said one sampler, if it had tasted even a bit like urine, I would have put it down. But you don't even notice. And yes, we would have to agree going unanswered is the question of how the sampler would know what urine tasted like. But he's pretty sure that Pisner didn't taste like that, so there you go. We do not expect here at Radio Priolox that this will be a marketing success in America. And it was definitely a bad week uh, a few weeks back for business classes, or maybe getting your MBA, after researchers in Denmark discovered that people who exhibit the so-called dark triad of personality traits, referred to in this case as narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism, are more likely to have majored in business or economics at college. Now, we have to say we're a little skeptical here because, you know, narcissism is a component of psychopathy, and we're not sure exactly what they mean by Machiavellianism. But as to whether psychopaths are more likely to major in business or economics, well, that seems quite plausible to us. And once again, you honest businessmen and businesswomen out there trying to earn a living, no, we, again, don't mean you. And we think you'd probably have to regard it as an ugly week last week for cultural sensitivity with the news that Lancaster, California Mayor Rex Paris said... He was trying to lower the city's crime rate and raise its income level by bringing in more Asian immigrants. Paris apparently added, "The same thing happens with the gays. That's why I put the new performing arts center right downtown." I do want to interject at this point that someone who would have definitely spoken out in favor of Mayor Rex Paris would be the late Judith Hetler, who once remarked at a party I was attending, "Look, If you took the Jews and the gays out of show business, there'd be nothing left. Anyway, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.